Once upon a time, the fairy tale goes, and launches into a whole new world. Maybe straw needs to be spun into gold. Maybe there's a contest to sew a lovely dress. Maybe there's a curse on the needle of a spinning wheel. Maybe there's a true love's kiss to turn the tides. So I love all these fairy tales and will even gladly have conversations about Grimm's tales versus Anderson's tales. Disney made most of the fairy tales nicer than they are in books, removing things like mermaids who turn to sea foam, but both are amazing in their own ways. In fairy tales though, even their best kings and rulers are flat. Stefan comes and goes in Sleeping Beauty, as does Triton in The Little Mermaid, one story and done. As we spend a few weeks with the stories of King Solomon, it's more helpful to think King Arthur than fairy tales. King Arthur is this ongoing legend with swords and stones and ladies out of lakes and a round table. Like Solomon, Arthur has centuries of legends, not just a single story. His story changes and evolves and new parts pop up in old places and telling his story a thousand years after the first time is still fun for those who hear. Both Solomon and Arthur share another similarity. Their legend exists with no certainty that the person ever did. Parts of their legend can be tied to history, but most of it remains only legend. So King Arthur warrants his own conversation in another setting, but today we'll talk about the wisdom of King Solomon. He's his own larger-than-life biblical legend, with his stories taking up much of both First Kings and Second Chronicles. He is the attributed author for the book of Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and most of Proverbs. Solomon is the son of the great King David, who was called by God to depose King Saul. And Solomon would become greater still, including having the privilege of building the temple. Solomon's story is not perfect. He gets to build the temple because his father David was not allowed to as a punishment from God. Solomon is the child of David and Bathsheba, the woman whose husband David killed so he could marry her instead. It was this sin that meant he could not build God's temple. But we're here to talk about Solomon. After his father David's death, Solomon's brother Adonijah makes a bid for the throne that is supposed to go to Solomon. There's a good fight between them, which ends with Solomon still as king. He marries one of Pharaoh's daughters in a political move to keep Egypt as an ally rather than a threat. And with that move and that marriage, Solomon's kingdom is firmly established. Immediately after, Solomon goes to offer sacrifices to God at Gibeon. There, God comes to him in a vision and asks what Solomon wants. Solomon answers, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness of heart toward you. Your servant is in the midst of people whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous they cannot be counted or numbered. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern your great people? Because Solomon asked for wisdom, 
and not long life or riches or the death of his enemies, God grants his request. And for good measure, God gives Solomon riches and fame and promise of a long life. And so we come to today's scripture, which is supposed to be one of the great examples of Solomon's wisdom. And I say supposed to be because while this story is told often, and the phrase split the baby exists as an idiom, it's not exactly one of the stories we're super glad is in the Bible. Like this isn't a shining example of what we want to talk about with our faith. But we have this story of two women standing before a king, and it reminds me of the famous big block of cheese day in the West Wing. Even if you're not a fan of the show, here's how the speech from the chief of staff, Leo McGarry, goes. Andrew Jackson, in the main foyer of the White House, had a big block of cheese. The block of cheese was huge, was two tons, and was there for any and all who might be hungry. It was there for the voiceless. Jackson wanted the White House to belong to the people, so from time to time he opened the door to those who wished an audience. It is in the spirit of Andrew Jackson that I, from time to time, ask senior staff to have face-to-face -face meetings with those people representing organizations who have a difficult time getting our attention. I know the more jaded among you see this as something rather beneath you, but I assure you that listening to the voices of passionate Americans is beneath no one, and surely not the people's servants. Causes heard on Big Block of Cheese Day include using the Peters projection map instead of the traditional Mercator map to foster social equality, and wildlife crossings and fair trade agreements. There's an echo in this scene from the Bible where two commoners stand before the king, arguing their case. Somehow this king's palace also belongs to the people and they are not sent away as if their cause could not possibly concern a king. King Solomon stands in stark contrast to his father-in-law, the pharaoh of the powerful Egypt. While we don't know which pharaoh was supposed to be ruling during the reign of Solomon, the Bible is clear that pharaoh is the ultimate exploiter. It is pharaoh who made people slaves, who ordered those slaves to build without materials, who grew richer by hoarding food during a famine, who ordered their children murdered, whose title still brings with it a jolt of doom. King Solomon is not Pharaoh. While the Bible doesn't seem to grasp the political structure of ancient Egypt in the way we might now, part of Solomon's goodness comes from the recognition he is subject to God, while Pharaoh's were God. While Solomon builds a temple, it is for the worship of God, not Solomon. While Solomon ends up with great wealth, it is not taken from the sweat, blood, and tears of his subjects. Even in asking for wisdom, Solomon recognizes he is entrusted with God's people and remains subject to God. So back to that baby to be cut in two. Is that wise advice? I don't know. I know the story far too well to judge effectively. 
It's been featured on TV shows and talked about in books and is so much a part of the world in, world I live in, I don't know if it's wise or not. I live in a world of DNA tests to solve such dilemmas, not swords. In hearing this story, I never imagined that the sword brought to the room might be lifted against the child. Plenty of other listeners are horrified that it would be. An ancient author commenting on this wisdom might use air quotes. He said that the people made fun of the king as if a boy. And yes, Solomon was young when he took the throne. In the rabbinic tradition of commentary, one rabbi wrote, if I had been there, I would put a rope around Solomon's neck. For one dead child was apparently not enough for him. No, he had to command that the second be divided in two. If anything, I would say that the wisdom is lost on us who hear the story in translation. In every case, our translators make a choice for us as is required with translation. In our Bibles, Solomon clearly says to give the child to the first woman, the one who would rather give up a child than have him killed. In the original language, it is simply give her the child with ambiguity as to which woman was given the infant. Rather than a story about a king's wise judgment, it is an invitation to consider which judgment is wise. As we journey through King Solomon's stories, we won't end up with many answers, but I do think there are questions worth asking. What ruler would we imagine with our most vulnerable siblings in mind. Who gets to speak to rulers today? Who does not get to speak to rulers today? Who reminds us of Pharaoh? What makes someone wise? Which judgment would be most wise? Amen.